Hello everybody, welcome and thank you for coming. I think I want to begin just by telling you briefly about this show because some of you may have seen it and some not. Um, this show we put together um, as part of a, a kind of William Kentridge extravaganza that has been happening in quite a few places all over the world, but especially in Cape Town. He's had a major retrospective recently. It's currently up and, and for some time at the Zeitzmacher in at the waterfront. There's also a retrospective exhibition of his sculptures at the Norval Foundation. Um, and at the same time, there's an, a, a major exhibition at uh, the Basel Kunst Museum. So partly to allow a Johannesburg audience to see some of the work and partly because we're very proud that some of the work that we have produced is on these shows. Um, we put this show together as a way of looking back. Um, well, over, I, I suppose over William's whole printmaking career, but specifically over the last 27 years, which is how long um, David Crit has been publishing William's work. Um, so what you see in here is a kind of illustrated history, I guess, of, um, of William's work over the past couple of decades. It's a very brief selection. William's oeuvre is, is absolutely monumental in, in scale. Um, as if, if any of you collect his work or follow his, his work, you will know that he, it's, uh, unless you've really got your finger on the pulse, it's actually quite difficult to keep up with him. Um, we've got prints here that go all the way back to 1975. Those two were um, some of the first that William, sorry, those two were some of the first that William carved uh, just after leaving school, all the way to the most recent work that was made in our workshop completed this, this year. Um, I think because probably we'll get into quite a bit about the prints themselves over the course of the discussion, I, I think I'd like to start by just touching briefly on the role of the publisher, uh, particularly in this context, because William is an artist operating at a very high level who is also specifically and primarily a printmaker, that's quite unusual. Um, a lot of the, 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 you know, the big names that spring to mind often make prints, but it's not their primary, it's not their primary practice. They're painters who make prints or sculptors who make prints, whereas William, Printmaking forms a, a, a fundamental and foundational role in terms of what he does. Um, so as a result, his relationship with publishers is key. Um, David is one of the publishers that's been promoting William for an incredibly long time. Um, and for those who are just looking at the work, I think it's, it's important to understand that there is a collaborative aspect to it. And I think that's, in terms of the questions that we've prepared, uh, that we get asked all the time, that really is the starting point. A publisher is somebody who works with an artist to produce a particular body of work or a particular single work. There is always, in this case, a, a workshop involved. Um, in this, in, in the, the case of David Crutt, it's the David Crutt workshop. Uh, Jill is the master printer of that workshop and has been for the last 13 years. 16 years, there we go. <laughs> um, so the workshop, the publisher and the artist work together in order to make the work. The publisher is a central tenant in that situation, especially when an artist is very young, that's not the case here. Um, but the publisher uh, plays a primary role. I think it's important to, to know that going into this discussion. In this case, we also have another one of the um, arms, I guess, of the machine. 
uh, under one umbrella, which is the gallery. Uh, the workshop is where the work is made along with the artist and the publisher who kind of backs it, funds it, guides it. Uh, then you have the gallery where the work is shown. Amay, who is um, our second contributor, is the director of the gallery here in Joburg. And then um, once we've moved beyond the primary market, we get to the secondary market, which is uh, what happens when a work has been bought by somebody from the gallery and is now wanting to be sold at an auction, and that's where James Say comes in. James is marketing and research at Aspire, which is we're very progressive, actually, auction house um, functioning here. Um, do you, are you functioning in Cape Town as well at this point? Okay, so there we go. Um, I just want to say also before we uh, go into the questions that if questions come up for you guys as we go along, please feel free to ask them. Um, what I'm going to do, just so that we don't get too long in terms of time, is um, because I know what questions we've prepared, if it's something that's probably going to be answered during the course of the discussion, I will say that and then we'll wait. If it's not likely to be, what I'll do is make a list and if we have time at the end, we'll come back to those. Um, I also, the, the last thing I'll say in introduction <laughs> is that um, because we, we will be talking quite a bit about publishing, um, aside from the role that the publisher plays in actually um, helping to make the work uh, exist in the first place, I think um, what's really important and also interesting to remember through the course of the discussion is that um, it's, it's a good way to think about a publisher is, is as a kind of special collector. A publisher is probably the best kind of collector in the sense that because they are making the work, they are facilitating the existence of the work, they are watching very closely all the time everything that is happening in that artist's practice, in their career, not only in terms of what they're making, um, but also where the work is showing, how the work is being received. It's, um, it's, it's, it's quite a, a mammoth task, especially in the case of William, to do that because he is all over the place. And so what you see in this room as well as the things that David has published himself are things that David has acquired over the years in order to be able to present in a holistic way the practice of the artist that he's, that he's working so closely with. So um, that's also just, it's just another important point, I guess, that I'd like to make. Um, I've prepared um, a list, we've, between us, prepared a list of questions. So I'm gonna just jump in and begin with those. Um, the first one being, the one that we get asked a lot in the gallery especially is why why do we so frequently show William's work? Um, why, why, do we, why is there always a William Kentridge exhibition somewhere in our lives? And also, why do we show the work in bits and pieces? So that is the question, and I'm gonna hand over to you guys to decide. I think probably, Ame, you get asked that question the most. <laughs> so perhaps you can start. So, I mean, the first thing that I'd like to say about that is that we produce the work. So we are the source of where it comes from. So we take a tremendous amount of time producing bodies of work, like the Universal Archive is 86 unique images that include, on top of that, a combination of images. So you think 86 
individual images, each at least an additional 15. That's over 1,200 prints. So just to give you a scope of what it is that we produce, so that's, that's where it comes from. And we've got a lot of it. Not that there's a lot of work that's all the same, it's all individual images, but that's the scope of how many works there are. I also just want to jump in, sorry, and say about Universal Archive, but also all of these major bodies, that each of those uh, major bodies of work takes about four years to complete. In the last 13 years, the workshop has made over 300 prints with William. 150 of them fall into four major projects, one of which is the Universal Archive. But it just it gives a sense of the, 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 the monumental amount of work that goes into just making a single edition. And in that entire time, I've been working with William just as running the workshop since for 13 years. In that time, I think there were three months that I wasn't working on one of William's projects. And of those four major, those, excuse me, those three major series are approximately 130 prints. The rest of the 170 we've made during that time. And we don't make one work and addition that and then go on to the next one. We're working on up to, I don't know, in the case of some of these smaller ones, we're working on up to 30 at a time. We're working on exhibition programs that William has running concurrently all over the world. So sometimes I say to a studio, tell me where it needs to be at what time and I'll have what you need ready. I'm not going to addition this in full. I'm just literally going to provide you with what you need, with what we need to show here or in New York, and then where it needs to move from there. And then if you need to make new things, we'll fit it in over here and then we'll just keep running production on this side. That's how prolific and how the ideas generate. When you start, he had one morning of what he called productive where he stopped and he was writing and he didn't know what to write about any longer. So he did some ink drawings, some dictionary pages, and he called me in and he said, can you make these look like ink drawings? Can you carve land plates and make them look like ink drawings? He had 15. One morning, turned into a four-year-long project. 86 works, culminating in the very large one behind you. It's 104 dictionary pages per work. So I guess to answer the question why do we show William's work so often is because the amount of time that it's taken to produce these body of work, it, that's how long, even longer it takes to introduce them to the world. No one can absorb 80 images in one go, although we'd like to show them all in one go. But that's, that's why we constantly show these works because it takes an obscene amount of time to get them into to get people together and an art museum. So the difference would be that you're right. Yeah, we can't house them. Yes. So I mean, that being said, we always have a permanent installation of William's work in our spaces. We've got our gallery space at 151, where there's a room dedicated to William's work, which rotates series of works. This exhibition coming down this weekend will go up there, so you will still be able to see it. And then in this space, we've got in the office, there's always a permanent installation of William's work. And at Arts on Main, we show the new projects, the latest student woodcuts are up there. So when you come to that projects, you can always see William's work. We don't ne necessarily need to wait for the next big Kentridge show, which is lovely, but maybe only every however many years. You can always come and see the work and 
ask questions and ask how it's made. And that's then, a, also a frequently asked question is why isn't there uh, a space that's dedicated to William's work? When we get a lot of tourists down at Arts Lane and they come through and they say, well, where do we see William's work? And so this is probably the best place. Yes. Yeah. Because there's one sculpture that's in town. Sometimes there's another one that you can go across the street. And then I can point you in the direction of maybe over here and you might see one. And so we have it on permanent rotation because we can. And that's what additions provide. That's yes. why William works in those conditions. He can show the same work in 12 different places in the world all, all simultaneously. Mm -hmm. So the, the value isn't that he doesn't have somewhere that it is. This is where it is. We do know what and how it's made, so we can actually take it through the whole process. Mm -hmm. Our workshop is also open, so you can walk in and see. Mm -hmm. And we literally are printing it. You can see how we do it. We keep it, it open. David forced us to do that. Years ago, when I fought him very young, I said, I can't concentrate on doing this under this kind of pressure while talking to someone. And he said, to me, this is key, because no one understands that the artist is involved in the making. I raised a place with William's once by accident. And William said to me, this is not the greatest tragedy in the history of art. Bring me another place, I'll bring you the image. So he's open to mistakes that might happen. It's trust that you build over years. So the more work that you do in the studio, the more that you understand what he might want. Mm -hmm. So somebody, which is probably the next question I'm already running into, is why, where do the printmakers take over mm -hmm. William's work? And why is one print maybe more valuable than the next? Mm -hmm. Which is William drawing on every plate? Is he carving every plate? And uh, yeah, that, that is that is exactly where I want to go next. And I think, James, I'd love to get your, in terms of this, uh, not so much in terms of where does the, where does the artist stop and the print printer begin, but also in terms of why make additions. Um, we, as publishers, have a very clear understanding of why we make additions, and it hits all it hits all those marks that Jill has just. Um, mentioned, but I, I'm very interested in, ter in terms of the perceptions that you come across in the secondary market. Um, I mean, the, first, the first thing to say is there's a lot of uh, uh, misguided opinions about additions in the secondary market. So, you know, collectors, collectors who collect additioned work understand the, the parameters of what it is they're collecting in terms of authenticity, in terms of numbering, in terms of the control of the edition by the artist and the, and the extent of the collaboration with the printers and, and publishers. Um, but I think a wider art collecting public don't grasp that nuance quite as readily. Um, and with William, with William's work, it's less of an issue in the wider collecting market. You know, partly because he's such a, a global celebrity artist, so you know people see value in in the signature. Uh, but it becomes an issue with something like um, you know unauthenticated editioning, which we get a lot in photography, for example, um, which is a, a kind of parallel way of, of seeing it. So when there is tightly controlled editions, which William is very uh, careful and considered about, um, it, it only adds value in mm. the secondary market to, 
see the press these days putting out. Mm. So, you know, that, that kind of, at least, perception of authenticity and control is very important. Mm. I think that, um, in terms of what you're saying now, I, I remember when I was working in the gallery, one of the things that I used to get asked, it's actually not on our list, but I'm going to say it anyway. <laughs> One of the things I used to get asked all the time, all the time, unless the person was very knowledgeable about editions in general, was, um, is, this, is this an original? And, and it became quite a challenge for me to explain why it is, but why the perception of original is not quite as they are thinking. Because when, when, when the general public come in and say, is this an original, what they mean is, is it unique? In other words, is there only one of it? Is it a painting or a drawing? Um, what, they're not, what they're not taking into account necessarily is, is the, is the artist involved in the making of this work? Um, and to what extent? So sometimes people would ask the question and I'd try and answer it by explaining that in fact the original original in terms of what they were asking is actually the plate. That's the plate. The etching plate, the lino cut plate, the wood cut and so on. That's the original. What you're looking at is a print. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's that the artist hasn't been involved less than if they were sitting in their studio making a, a, a drawing or a, or a painting. Um, and what, we, what came up the other day in discussion uh, when Amay and Jill and I were talking about this is that in, in some cases, at least in my humble opinion, uh, you are, are in fact sometimes closer to the artist when you are looking at their uh, prints because of the nature of the processes involved, um, an artist has a lot less uh, individual, closed control over what is presented um, when, they're, uh, when they're in the workshop than when they're sitting in the studio. An artist comes into the workshop, the, process, the processes themselves are unpredictable. There are a lot of different elements at play. The, the, the particular strength of the acid, the particular movement of the tool, the expertise of the printmakers, the pressure of the press. When that print comes off the press, the artist is seeing it for the first time, just like everybody else. And, and there's something... Yeah, yeah. And backwards. And backwards, yeah. So in a way, the artist is a lot more vulnerable in the studio, in the print workshop, than they are in their own studio. And it's, it's exactly the same for every artist, including William. But, um, but they're also more experimental. Yes. But they do understand that it's a place that they can feel comfortable in, and they can actually do something that they wouldn't be able to otherwise do. Mm. And if they are thinking of something, that's more the natural tendency that us and the printmaking team gear towards, rather than something they already know. There isn't a point in us exploring something we don't know. We, we need to try to think beyond that, or provide six different versions of something so that they can move beyond that. And for the artist, everything is visual. So if you're really slow to understand the assets that you're working with, or to carve your plates, you lose the, the attention of the artist entirely. So everything we have to do is under pressure as well. And I don't ever want to say perfectly, because if you make perfect art, it's souls. So you have to have some sort of nuance as well. So what we call them happy accidents, or when things literally go wrong, properly go wrong. And most artists, if they really are enjoying the creative process, they just go with it. Mm. And, I think, and find something new. Yeah, and I think just to add from the kind of economical perspective, 
needs and in terms of um, why an artist would make an addition mm. rather than a unique work. The additions allow for a broader spectrum of distribution. So if you have one artwork, Jill's a collector, she's buying my artwork, it's going in a house, no one else is going to see that artwork. But she maybe buys an edition, she has a gallery in Canada, they buy an edition, we have a gallery in New York, they buy an edition. So it becomes global, and that's part of the reason why William has become such an important artist, is because it's global. His works are mm-hmm. seen all over the world, and you can't do that with necessarily unique work. You're going to have to make a lot more work than he does already, and he's working every day, practically 20 hours mm-hmm. a day, yeah. to make the amount of work that he makes. So. From that perspective, it's incredibly valuable to an artist to produce additions that can travel from one place to another. And mm-hmm. as a collector, I think um, owning one of those additions, like let's say I own William Kintridge and I, it's now being shown at the Museum of Modern Art, or it's being shown at the Royal Academy, like many of the Museum <coughs> countries have been shown. That, to me as a collector, is incredibly valuable. It's validating my investment in this artist and the, the capabilities of the artist and saying, basically I made a correct decision. Not that, it's not saying that if you didn't, it's not done at the Royal Academy, but just to illustrate a point in terms of what does it mean for me as a collector when my works are shown in these incredible designs museum or wherever it is. So I think that that's mm. incredibly valuable to understand in terms of additions, not kind of shoving them aside saying, you know, why there's so many, I want an original, I want a unique. Or being critical of the fact that he's very prolific. Exactly. Mm. The, his, his, the fact that he's prolific is has aided the value of his friends. Mm. Absolutely, 100% has brought William to where he is today with multiple awards, all the major reasons. He's one of the top 100 artists dead and alive, and they're like some pretty amazing artists out there, so I think that's pretty mm. incredible. So that is something very important for people to understand mm. in terms of his having, because we do get that, mm. you know. This is just the source, so he works in Johannesburg. He yes. actually as an audience get to often see the work first time, but we don't realize it until much later. Mm. So it, because it comes in bits and pieces, as we were talking about too, if we're working on a series of works, Universal Archive is an example, is 86 prints, Many, I still think you know, but the, the unique images, and it takes us years to produce them. So you might only see three to start with, and then you see eight. And one year we were working on the nose prints, which nobody understood for years, years. The opera is overseas. Who knows what that story is about? Mm-hmm. And David always tries to bring it all together by publishing books and information and by just speaking about them constantly. Even mm-hmm. Mikhail Zabowski yesterday I was speaking to him, he said, nobody has caught on to work that I've now been doing. They're finally catching on to something that's been five years. Mm-hmm. I've been showing them for five years. We had to show those notes, Prince. <laughs> and the beauty was, is we started on the project before William became incredibly famous, but incredibly, because that was 2010. And that's when the nose opera debuted in New York, and we had been working on that series already for four years. Mm-hmm. So we started at the very beginning, before he started working on the Nose Opera, so he was developing ideas. We worked on it through when he was working on the opera, and we launched it when he debuted. Mm-hmm. So we got to see the whole trajectory mm-hmm. of his thinking process. 
Yes, and he does, I mean, as an artist, he really does, the, the print workshop and printmaking as a medium really does function for him, I think, as, as a thinking process, as a, as a way for him to unpack ideas and fragments that have come to him. There's, an, there's a wonderful thing I read recently in that book, actually, this little red book. He, William's writings, but he's writing about a specific work called The Overdetermined Branch, which is a drawing of a tree in ink on dictionary paper. But it, for me, when I was reading it, really uh, applied to so much of the work that we've made on dictionary paper, but also to so much of his work overall. And he tells a lovely story about how the Oxford English Dictionary was created by a bunch of people in the Victorian era who had asked wholesale people across Britain to send in their own personal understandings of various of, of words on index cards and they were posted off and so there you have this bunch of people sitting in a garden shed with all these personal epistemologies on index cards and they're sifting through these thousands of submissions to make this book which is now considered the transcendental source of what these words mean. So William tells the story and then in relation to why he uses dictionary paper uh, as a substrate, he mentions something about the human head being not quite exactly the same size as a dictionary, but, but it's close. And it's quite similar to what happens in your head. You open the page, there are all these words, the words come at you, the meanings come at you, but not only that, all the associations, all the memories, all the dreams that you had yesterday, the things that your shopping list, the whiskey you didn't buy, the tree that you tried to hang a hammock in when you were a kid that never was strong enough, all of those things happen all at that time and that is how William works and I think the workshop for him functions as a space in which all that comes together with other people skills are transferred uh, bet between him and the others. It's, it's quite a beautiful process. Um, Picture how amazing it is when you have like, eight sheets of paper out to look at, at a table and you have to figure out how to put it together. Yeah. That's what it's like magic. He walks in there and it's magic. Oh, Maya, yeah, it's, it's the same work. Like scary. Yeah, a little bit scary. It's the same with Maya Mavich's work. We, we set up little bits and pieces. She comes in and she goes, into the doll, what do we do with this? That you don't have to do all yourself, every single part of it. Mm. You know, and it, it, the collecting of words is much the same. Mm. You know, it's sharing. And it um, it kind of brings me to my next the next question, um, which is I, I think I'm going to combine these two questions. Um, it's why make editions. We've kind of already answered that, um, but also why buy them? Why buy prints? Uh, are they are they as valuable an investment as, as everything else, and why? And I, I'm sure, James, that you will be able to chime in here quite in, in a very relevant way in terms of because you must get asked that kind of stuff yeah. as much as we do. I mean, we as print specialists, we kind of that's what we deal in. We don't really have to contend as much as you do with the other media, I guess. So, the, good, I mean, the simple answer is no. Um, so, the, in the auction market globally, for most print works, and certainly, you know, attention for Williams' work across the world is focused on specific series, mm. um, and you know that's it, it. Kind of develops value in that way for specific series of prints. For the same reasons that 
value and individual works development. But the, on average, the, you know, his, his most valuable works um, at auction are, first of all, sculpture groups. Mm -hmm. um, there's a couple of those. And then there's a couple of like strange, unique works. And then there is the drawings from the films. From the okay. So that kind of comprises William's top ten at auction. Um, and those are all obviously unique works. Mm. Um, and they're all works that tick the auction value boxes. Mm. So provenance, you know, certainly for serious collectors at that level, where they're, they're multi-million and often, you know, multi-million dollar works, they're my multi-million rand works. So, you know, the uniqueness is a factor, but mm -hmm. also the, the provenance, the, the precedent, all the factors are going to, and their importance in his oeuvre. So, mm -hmm. you know, the drawings from the films, because the series of films were his, really his breakthrough work, mm -hmm. um, and were instrumental in, in making his market take off at the end of the 90s, mm -hmm. um, are really still the kind of sought after mm -hmm. unique works. But having said that, you know, the print series, um, and I agree, you know, I mean, the distribution of prints and how they make the artist's work accessible um, to, a, to a wider, albeit discerning public. And where you've got, as with William, because he's at the level he's at globally, um, you've got a situation where he can produce print series of museum quality. Mm -hmm. um, but they're still about, you know, a quarter or a third of the value. The, you know the very best examples in his print series of of the unique works, mm. and you know that's I'm afraid just how mm. it is going to be in, in the, the collectors. In that in that market, yeah. So. I am. Um, whenever I used to get asked that question, which was a lot, I I, I imagine possibly every day for a number of years. <laughs> why why should I buy this print? And the way that I used to answer it was from the, the complete opposite, not, not because the unique works are not more valuable, mm. but just from the opposite um, side, and I, I think it's definitely a production thing. What I often used to say to people is that um, in terms of an investment, and I mean you are dealing in investment, you know, an, an investment being something you can put money into and that, that investment is easily liquidated, mm. ideally for a profit. Um, if that's your game, generally, unless you're dealing with William, and there are a couple of others, other living artists with a very strong secondary market presence, if you're dealing with contemporary art, you are making an investment, but you are not... What you're investing in is um, not what you think, not what they were usually asking me. I think it's important with contemporary art to remember, with the, when the artist is still living, certainly, it's, it's really important to remember that what you're investing in is that artist's capacity to go the distance in terms of being able to make a positive impact on the development of the culture in which they are functioning. And the reason why print, so that's all contemporary art, regardless of its uniqueness or not. The benefit from a collector's perspective when buying on the primary market at least of buying a, of buying a print is that you as, a, as, a, as an investor know that someone has already invested 
before the work's even been made, somebody has fronted that cash to make the work. The publisher is the one who will say, okay, I believe in this. I'm watching very closely, and because I believe in this, I will allow, I will, I will fund this project. So before the work even gets into the world, there is already a pretty large investment in it. I mean, if I'm yeah. It's very interesting because um, you, I think you're spot on, but the interesting thing is if, I mean, unique works are generally seen as collectible items that you want to collect because you're passionate about the artist's work and you're going into the market to, to collect work that you love. Mm. And that's kind of the, the first rule of thumb. But it's very interesting that, I mean, having said what I've said, that the, the unique works that form uh, Williams auction records uh, globally are, you know, way more valuable than the, the leading print series in, in the same video. Um, the, the print series represent far better return on investment. Interesting. As a, as an, if you're looking at art as an investment asset. Mm. So, you know, what you would be able to buy, not just the Kendrick's print, but, you know, any number of, of uh, edition works by other contemporary artists. Mm. What you're buying them for when you're, you're buying on the primary market and what you're able to sell them for, given all the other conditions being placed, mm. represents like thousands of percent mm. in return on investment. Yeah. And the interesting thing about William's work, which <coughs> Joe alluded to earlier, is that um, one of the reasons why he does so consistent, why he's done so consistently well across the board in global collecting terms in the last ten years or so, is that his his certainly the print series and the unique works have attracted a lot of museum level critical attention mm. around the world. So all the work always has around it. Um, the necessary exhibition history and provenance, it has the, the necessary critical apparatus around it, the necessary theoretical insight, which is not only those works, but, but the artist himself, in this case, um, in, in a global mm. context. And that's incredibly important. And that becomes a self, uh, a virtuous self-perpetuating cycle. Mm once you get to the, the level that, that William is at. Mm -hmm. And he's also in the, in the, in the very um, fortunate position, although it's all down to him, of constantly feeding that machine with mm -hmm. new material. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's kind of, yeah, I think it's, mm -hmm. a, it's a very virtuous cycle. But as I say, you know, on the, in terms of the analyses that we've done, not only with, with Kentridge, but you know, even with South African, Staples like Pierre for Hodgins. Mm. If you had bought prints 20 years ago, you could get them for two grand. Yeah. Mm. You'd be selling them now for, for yeah. you know, works 20, 30, 40. And I mean, Amir, you have some fabulous examples just in this room of works that, you know, works that at the publisher's price were. Yeah. So that have now know, realized that, that are, yeah. you know, those that are still available are now retailing yeah. for so unbelievable amounts of money. Just before I say that, I want to just add to what James is saying, and just in terms of, and I'm just going to ask the next question, mm. which is when is the best yeah. time to buy a Kentridge or work coming from a print studio? 
And it is when it's part of the press. It's the publisher's price, the first price, that you would get, for example, the two, the four smaller works behind you, the ones that we've just editioned now in September. And that, you're never going to get a better price than what they have now, for example. And just, I don't want to, there are two things here. So one, I think, it's already an investment buying, or you're already going to get a return on your money buying a, a print because you're going to buy it now for 30,000 Rand. As it becomes more limited in availability, prints go up in price. So the last one's going to be 50. You've already got back. You don't have to put it on auction to have increased what you've gained on that print, which is A. And B, prints also um, evaluate, I think, over time. Because they take so long to get into the world, people to notice them. An artist's career grows, and the prints grow along with them. If you have Williams produced work, and they are now $50,000, you can't bring out a new print for 1,000 Rand or $100. That, that's, isn't market related. So prints are growing with the, as the artist grows, and that's inevitable. That's not something that someone decides. It just is what it is, because they're already market related values. There's already research done on those projects. I don't know what it's going to be, but it's that, that's going to be the two things. So what Jill was saying about the two little works at the back, 60 Rand, William, I think, sold those for two door, printed them himself. 60 Rand in paper those, and I know because we spoke about this in the week on the Spire auction, they just realized price of fifty thousand dollars, fifty thousand rand each for those that were for sixty rand for one. And then the scribble cats in this room sold that was in two thousand and ten, and that sold first sold for thirty-five thousand rand. No, it sold for one hundred and fifty thousand rand to start. One hundred and fifty thousand. Okay, one hundred and fifty thousand rand sold to the business um, which now would be around closer to $70,000, which is, what's that now, a million, over a million. And then um, the Universal Archive, for example, those little prints there would have sold for 15,000 Rand each. They now round about 70,000 Rand each. 17 so point. Yeah, yeah, we both know that, Hobbsy. I know, me too. <laughs> so 17,000 Rand for that work, which would now, everyone who didn't buy them are now crying, and it happens all the time with prints. All the time. If I can just pop in, the, the scribble cat is a really good example of how this process works because, in Williams, uh, because the scribble cat is a motif that he uses in different contexts, in different ways, throughout many different types of works and different mediums. Um, so you're able to, using that visual motif, you're able to link different parts of his output and different mm. parts of his career together. So primarily, they're important in the early films, which you know are a kind of cornerstone of the reputation. But the fact that they run throughout print uh, series and they're, you know, they're in the drawings, they're in various other uh, multimedia productions, means that you know, uh, collectors can get a handle on what that motif is, rather than when you know, he does the nose and nobody's heard of, of uh, you know, Russian mm. constructivism. <coughs> and certainly not in the, in the South African market. So there's an accessibility about those things, and mm. plus it's a cat.
Mm. <laughs> and it's a landscape orientation. Yeah. I believe those are easier to sell. It's actually one of the other questions that we get asked all the time is why does William draw the same thing all the time? Why? Why do we keep seeing cats? Do we keep seeing rhinos and we keep seeing coffee pots and we keep seeing why does he do that? Trees. Trees is a great example. I um, was doing some research recently about the trees specifically. And um, a lot of the, the more recent work, let's say in the last 10 years, and I, I know very well because I've worked with it very closely. Prior to that, you kind of have an, a, an intellectual academic knowledge of it from stuff that you've read. But when I was reading now very closely, sort of scouring to find interesting things about why does he keep drawing these trees, there were some things that, I, that, that appear in this series, in this body of work, the lacquer brick, the if you have no eye, and there were a series of drawings that he did at the same time, that there, there were prints that he was making in the 90s that, was that they were he was using then exactly the same tone of phrase, um, the same uh, sort of um, movement of the hand to make work then as he's making work now. And um, so I'm going to answer it and then you guys can give your own answers. But I think for me, the, the answer to that question is that William, uh, William doesn't believe in transcendental signifiers. He's very interested in how knowledge is formed through a kind of fragmentary process of putting it together. And so as a result of that, he, as an individual human living in, on this planet, has the, you know, he has these things that keep recurring in his own life. Um, and he has a way then of putting them together that leaves it wide open for interpretation for everybody else, and at the same time commenting all the time on the politics, especially of South Africa, but in more recent years of wherever it is that he happens to be working. Um, this project is a good example of a recent sort of site-specific political and historical analysis of this, this work, I'll just tell you, comes from um, a, a project called Triumphs and Laments in which William uh, went to Rome and along the banks of the Tiber River he created a, a massive frieze. It's 500 meters long, 10 meters high, he had drawn for this um, project a, a long procession of figures uh, that come from history, history of Rome, history of other places. The, the, the procession then started making him think of migrants, people trying now to come across the Mediterranean into Italy. There's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of political and historical content there. Um, he, he kind of throws it all in and sees what it does. He doesn't really, I don't think, have much intention prior. He's interested and he's engaged and he puts it all together and, and what comes out comes out. He's very good at finding and realizing the connections afterwards. This work, it, this individual work, um, which is one of six woodcuts that the workshop that Jill made then with William based on the figures in the Triumphs and the Men's Freeze, this black square came about uh, in the freeze as a result of getting to the end of the project. They had uh, high pressure hosed the pollution off the wall basically in order to create this freeze. Um, and William got right to the end and realized all of a sudden that there were 12 meters of wall that there, there was nothing to put in them. He'd made a mistake. <laughs> he, hadn't, <laughs> he didn't have enough figures. There were not enough stencils. There wasn't enough time now 
to make more. And so he just decided in the process to just make it, you know, it's just going to, you've got to put something there, so let's put that. And then the minute that he did that, he realized that in fact the black square has all the, the, the associations that proliferated as a result of that decision, which was made on the spur of a moment as a result of a mistake, were, are quite phenomenal. Um, so that's one of the reasons why he keeps drawing the same thing. I don't know if anybody else has anything to say. Sorry, I'm just going to ramble. When we started the Triumphs in the Men's series, I think William's also aware of, as an example, how the Nose series, when we launched it in bits and pieces, how people can't follow. So at the very beginning of this project, he just finished the wall. That's not true. As he was putting it up, as they were sandblasting the pollution off the walls in Rome, we started working on this series. We went really big with the idea of doing woodcuts because wood can give you gestures depending on the wood grain that there is, the types. Mm. So we figured that we could actually make up composite pieces because we'd learned how to do prints that are made up of a lot of different pieces and that we could go with large. So it's made up of a whole different variety of shapes and forms of pieces of paper as well as wood books. But we did it because it related to the project on the wall. And that as soon as William did the final piece, which is this one, along the Tiber River, he kept saying to me, but we have to make the black rock. We have to make the black rock. And David said, what is this? <laughs> 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 what are you talking about this black rock? So William then, we make the next one that looks like William, which is called the flood. And then after that, we made Lampedusa because it was smaller in scale, because people were very critical of how big the prints were. Couldn't understand. So as we're developing this series over four years, we finally get to this work, and everyone said, oh, it's a black block. "What do we do with this?" <laughs> and in fact, a year later, when we did a whole exhibition in here and we unpacked how it was made, I had saved because I was so excited. We always we make the blocks and then we print them to make sure that they're flat. And so that means that we just have solid prints that are just the wood block themselves before it's carved. So I made the actual black block on the back wall. And William had known that we were going to do this, and we were just waiting to actually put this print up. For two years, we waited. So we put that up, and then we unpacked how this was made. And finally, people understood only again a year or two later after this, when this book came out, as to what the reference is about the black block. So what it had to do in context with the project that was along the Tyburn River in Rome, and what it had to do in the greater context of what triumphs and laments, what the title of this body of work was mm. about. Because it was Rome's greatest triumphs and their greatest tragedies at the same time. And when one person wins, someone has to lose. So William was trying to weigh up who, mm. who, and how, and how that other person feels when they're on either end of that dilemma. And then this is Quelloce non ricordo, is that which I do not remember, which is everything bunched in. So even though if you are victorious, you're ignoring Mm. Supposedly, you should be paying attention to. Mm. So it's that balance, and it's the same thing. We only understood that after following this, and the mm. publication has to come out, mm. which also always happens overseas. That David has to find for us to bring them back, so that we can also sell them in the bookstore, so that we can also understand. Mm. If you try to uh, ask William for information, sometimes, sometimes we get it. It's in questions in the studio. We follow. He brings us in. We follow what he's doing. He brings us into the studio all of the time. He shows us the workshops that he's doing. I know exactly what he's working on most of the time. 
One afternoon I went there, it was an hour and a half, I saw his latest opera, his newest charcoal film, the two other pieces that he was working on for lectures. And then I get text pieces, so snippets and bits and pieces of information so that we can collect it and understand how to do work, so that we understand the greater context of what's going on. So I also encourage you to his schedule, which is one of the questions <laughs> yeah. as to what William's just done in this last year. And even just to, William, I now have to, I have access to his schedule, but you have to know when he's actually here. So William this year, I think, had been in New York two to three times, Tokyo for a prize. He had four, six to eight exhibitions and four museum shows, including the two in Cape Town, that are together the biggest show he's ever done. So for him, all of the work, the last exhibition that I saw that even compares to that was at MoMA in 2010. And that was just because of the sheer size. William said the show in Zeitz is 80% of his films that he's ever made, 2% of his drawings, 2% of his prints, and the sculpture exhibition at Norville is 70 to 80% of the sculptures that he's ever made. So that it's vast. And normally, this goes overseas. A lot of the work, that isn't necessarily in here, but a, a number of projects we're working on in the studio, nobody gets to see here. They actually just go overseas. Mm. So when we're looking for exhibitions, sometimes we say, but the work's all gone. Now we have to keep working. And do you guys only work in black and white? We don't. We don't. Just often printmaking, very, very traditionally, is printed in black ink. So a lot of our printmakers are traditional printmakers. So a lot of them understand the process and have been doing it a long time. William doesn't like color. Mm -mm. Actually, he repeatedly says it makes him uncomfortable. So even when we did the scribble cuts as an example, there's red pins that we sandblasted and then painted, just incredibly laborious. And also, he hand paints each of them. And then in red pencil, crayon, he did the registration marks for me. The registration marks being how you line the print up. And what we learned from that we moved into this body of work, and later into this body of work. And so the hand painting, for the most part, is done by William, just so everyone knows, which also is mm. another question that we're going to talk about, because we get asked that quite frequently. But in the case of this work here, there's a base, this is the peonies, there's a base grade. I did that. So it's the evenness of it. What, what every artist naturally has a tendency to do is to change something every time they do it. Technician doesn't. So I learned how to paint fluidly and quite quickly. I had to move very quickly so that I wouldn't leave any marks. And then William comes on with the second layer of paint and actually does the foreground and the drips that are in the, in the flowers themselves. The Same nuance, on the, yeah, the, gest the gesture. The, uh, that's the artist's hand. The artist's if he hand. has to do it in that case, maybe it's an addition of 40. If he had to do that 40 times, it's not going to get done. And I don't mean that because he wouldn't want to. He has done that. And he will do that. But it isn't something that he necessarily has to do. So if there's something that he doesn't have to do, that we can save time so that he can actually be far at the unique details, that's when you need the artist. So the difference between like what a print might be and where an artist can step in, we all think about all the time. And a lot of these bodies were William made a lot of tree drawings that also went overseas that nobody got to see here actually. He was making them all of the time. This is a way that people could actually see them here. Mm. And so we, we dissect drawing uh, books, incredible amounts of books. We source them. We do all of that. William does that too. He now comes into the studio to ask if I have any extra pages all the time. <laughs> do you have any extra pages? 
these are the, all the different kinds of books that we dissect. These are, I also, a lot of times we get asked if we consider which books we're using, that kind of thing. And so I brought a whole bunch of examples to you just to show people. And how considered it is in the steps of which we take in the printmaking studio in order to ensure, one, the longevity of the work, the uh, acid-free or archival nature of it, so that it can be moved all over the world, how to take a giant print and put it down into a tiny cardboard box so that it can go overseas easily with instructions manuals. So we make it, we consider all of the aspects that the artist sometimes just doesn't have time to do. Mm -hmm. And the filing is underneath the table there on the art so, how much. So here's a print in administration. <laughs> to give you a sense of what goes into. Well, that's a body of work, right? Well, that's not a print. No, not a single print, but that this is when, when you're working, and it's not only William. I mean, when you're working with additioned work, you we have, have to. We have to make them ones. We have to yeah. remember how to do it. But you also have to know, I mean, from the, from, the, from the gallery perspective, so that's primary market, and also from a provenance perspective, you have to know, you've got one image, and there are 20, it's, it's one of 20. You've got to know where it's come from, where is it going, how many, wh who have we sold what to? Where, you know, when is it going to pop up again? We don't, in the case of William, we do actually think about that. You know, you sell, and you don't know sometimes. <laughs> sometimes they do pop up and you actually, you know, you, you have a, it kind of all comes together. It's quite, it's quite nice actually. To, you've, you've got everything represented in this room. You've got that, is, the, that is still a bit of a disconnect primary and secondary market. Yeah. We often are <coughs> left with the burden of proof mm -hmm. uh, and chasing certificates of authenticity or you know, mm. the provenance of the work is sometimes difficult, not so much in, in Kendridge's case, but mm. certainly with other edition work. Mm -hmm. you know, not everyone is as meticulous and, and uh, as, as, uh, as well-resourced, <laughs> well But I think it's fascinating because we, David more specifically, does a lot of research on the secondary market and you guys, that's, you guys have been in contact quite a few times with David's written text or Joel's written text and it, you inquire about the work and it's, mm. it's extremely valuable to know that the file exists if you need to know something. Yeah. It's in Joel's file, for sure, or in David's database. Or just in David's mind. Or in David's mind. So, <laughs> David's um, brain has an enormous yeah. amount of information. <laughs> Joel has a lot of stuff to show. So. Um, yeah, so if you want to stick around and see it, around, it's all here. You can try your hand at carving a plate. You can try it. I also brought dictionary pages just to show how, how and what you source and how different the colors are. How the mutilation process. How the mutilation process. <laughs> so, thank you everybody. Cool. Thank you, thank you very much. <laughs>